One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Break, the podcast bringing you content to sports fans at a time when we are deprived of live action. Across the series, I'll be joined by Neil Foles and Jimmy White to debate some of the biggest talking points in snooker, as well as catching up with some of the game's biggest names. Today, we discuss the best Triple Crown matches of all time. And a reminder that this is coming to you from the confines of self-isolation, so please do excuse the audio quality at times. We've got loads to talk about, Neil, and it's going to be difficult, of course, for us to talk about the greatest ever Triple Crown matches. We've sort of condensed it a bit by using the word Triple Crown because, of course, there have been so many great snooker matches. And there will be people listening to this that go, well, you didn't mention this match or you didn't mention that one. But we're going to do our best to talk, you know, to, to condense it as much as possible, right? So for both of you, for, for Jimmy and for Neil, if there's a match all of a sudden that just pops out, just start talking about it and then we'll, we'll go that way because, of course, there's... Far too many to mention in half an hour. So let's start. Let's start. Let's go back in time to the um, 1983 UK final that saw Alex Higgins beat Steve Davis by 16 frames to 15. And Neil, I'll start with you. What I find amazing about that is that three years previously, Steve Davis beat Alex Higgins in the final of the same competition and he beat him 16-6. So the fact that Higgins beat Davis and he did it by the odd frame as well, that really does put this Mm. match up there with some of the best we've ever seen. Yeah, because it's not easy to, you know, you play someone like Steve Davis and he hammers you um, and it can leave a scar. And especially when there's an argument, Steve was probably a better player in 83 than he was previously. So, yeah, that was a great performance. And we, we talk about the 85 World Final where Dennis Taylor was 8-0 down. Alex was 7-0 down in this match. So it looks like at that point he's going to get hiding. And one thing about Steve Davis, he wasn't the sort of guy to take his foot off the, the break and say, OK, well... I'm so far in front, I'm going to win anyway. He would have wanted to win every frame of that match. But Alex Higgins was inspired. And that was kind of a word that I think would describe his old careers. Inspired. He, the crowd got behind him. Things changed. And what he becomes a, a game of playing on the table becomes something in the mind. And, you know, he got to Davis. And at the time, very few people had ever done that before. Just before we go into that match any further, maybe that's why Dennis Taylor got that win a couple of years later. Because Steve had a few scars, you know, he was a long way in front in that match, a long way in front against Taylor and lost both matches. But Alex Higgins really did the damage there. And you know, towards the end of the crowd, were really behind him, as you mm-hmm. can imagine, because Steve was the, the people you kind of liked to hate at the time. And Jimmy, your your game, of course, is, uh, I'm guessing, based on Higgins, Higgins's game. And it must be very difficult for opponents, certainly like Steve Davis, to try and work out what a player like Alex Higgins is going to do, because there's... 
there's, there's so many times in a match and in a frame where you might leave the ball safe and all of a sudden Higgins pots the ball off a lampshade and goes on to win the frame. So it must be so difficult to play against. Yeah, he was an incredible shot maker. But just reiterating what Neil said, uh, you know, Higgins was 7-0 down to Davis and it looked like it was going to be, you know, a good hiding again. Previous time he beat him 16-6, as Neil said. But when he was 7-0 down, Higgins... Um, Davis played okay, but Higgins had made a lot of mistakes. I remember I was there watching it. And then he went on the second session, uh, Higgins. He, he stole a few games on the colours safety play-wise, which uh, Davis is a master at that, like Mark Selby is today. Is, you know, he win most games that were scrappy. And Higgins won quite a few of the scrappy frames in the next session. And it sort of knocked Davis off his normal game. And he was always in the same sort of focus. You know, he never looked flustered, Davis, but for some reason he did. He got he got wound up. He lost his stride. And Higgins went on to a crawl over the line. Amazing victory over, you know, Davis was the best in the world at the time. And Neil, just quickly, before we move on, yeah. we know Higgins, of course, won the world title twice. Where do you think he'd rate this victory amongst all his wins? I think it was right up there. Um, he didn't make 100 centuries in his career, Alex Higgins. You think, well, okay, well, maybe he wasn't that great a player. Well, actually, that's not true. As Jimmy said, he was a great shot maker. He would he would win frames that were the balls were not very good. He was a real um, wily player. People forget that. You know, he knew he was a fierce competitor. He'd win all the close frames. He could score. Don't get me wrong. You know, he was a scorer, but not maybe to the levels now. That's where the game's moved on. But that win would have to be right up there. And it certainly is one that I don't think you could ever forget. And I don't think Steve ever forgot it. And that's the point. Mm. He didn't like losing to Alex. That's for sure. Mm. You know, and he wasn't frightened to win a match easy as he did to John Parrott in that world final. He won 18-3. But this was not one of those days, you know, and uh, it was a very memorable match. All right, let's move on to now the, um, the 2010 final of the UK Championships between John Higgins and Mark Williams that went the distance. A fantastic match, that one. Again, I watched, I watched a lot of this. The final frame, both players had chances and they were both... Um, I wouldn't say in, in their prime, but they were up there with some of the best snooker they've ever produced. Neil. It was a fantastic match and one that actually was worthy of going the distance. Yeah, I think you think about the class of 92 and you think every great match must have involved O'Sullivan, you know, because he's mm. one of the big three in that. But there actually were a couple of great games. I think we are going to look at the world final they played as well, those two players. But, um, you know, Mark Williams was a long way in front and it got to 9 all. And we were discussing, actually, just briefly earlier on, the, the double that that uh, John took in the deciding frame, which was a... I mean, he was one of the great world's great doublers of a ball, but it, it was a memorable shot to end a great match, you know? And uh, so many of these finals would go to the deciding frame are the ones that live in the memory the longest. Jimmy, what's it like playing that deciding frame? Of course, you've been involved in loads of them. The reason I ask that is because in this final frame, Mark Williams was in first, made a break of 13, then potted the brown, and then when it re-spotted, he snooked himself on the red that he was playing in the middle pocket. That ended his break. Then Higgins got in, I think, with the 66. He got a kick, and then Williams was back in. Obviously, the nerves must get the better of you when you're playing that yeah, final fight. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you just try and, uh, you know, have faith in your cue action and, uh, you know, try and stay as still as you can. It's easier said than done because there's all different thoughts going through your mind. And uh, if you've had a chance and you've let it go, you know, that can sort of knock your confidence a bit. But what I remember about that match, especially with the double, uh, Higgins was 15 in front on the brown, and it was it was a long double from the D to one of the black pockets, which is an unusual double at any, at any stage. 
but he can see that it was value. And as Neil said, he's a fantastic double of ball, probably the best in the game, played the double, went in 19 in front and won the tournament. Mm. It's, um, it's up there with probably one of the best wins. I know it's difficult to say for John Higgins because, of course, he won the world title so many times. But winning against someone you grew up with must make it a little bit sweeter as well, Neil. Yeah, I think those three are interesting three, aren't they? Because they're quite different in their, their ways. You know, you look at Ronnie O'Sullivan, you look at, you know, Mark Williams, John Higgins. There's a lot of mutual respect there, but they're very different, aren't they? In the way, you know, these days, Mark Williams very, very out there on, on social media, loves to put just about everything he's doing on there. Ronnie is Ronnie. I think we have to say any more than that. You know, he's uh, one of the great characters of the game. John Higgins is different again, you know. He's quiet. He's not a social media man. You know, he's a quite private guy. Um, but they've given us great times over the years. But one thing about John Higgins, he's still a very cool player and nothing's really changed in his game very much. If you looked at that final now and you saw it and you much maybe the world final they played eight years later, you might not detect anything different, you know, in, in John Higgins' game. He's not one of these guys that messes around with his cue action. He's more of a, someone that changes his cue a lot. Over the years, he's taken, you know, taken a couple of inches off the top of his cue. You think, well, that's a lot. And then he's got a new one. So he, he doesn't tinker with his cue action, but he does mess around with his cues. But he's been around a very long time now. And, you know, that is one of his better wins, I would think. Right, let's move on now to uh, another fantastic final in the history of the UK Championships. And that one wasn't too long ago, actually, 2018. Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Mark Allen 10-6. And it was a big one for Ronnie O'Sullivan. Seven UK titles, uh, 19 triple crown wins. But probably best remembered, if that's fair, Neil, for Ronnie O'Sullivan sitting in his chair and pouring a bottle of water over his head. Do you know, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, it was a strange thing to do, wasn't it, at the end of a match? You know, uh, Ronnie's done some odd things at the end of matches. I, I remember actually just getting away from it briefly. He lost in the World Championships. I think it was to Graham Dot, and he just gave uh, a kid who was sitting in the audience his cue and case. Mm. I mean, who does that? You know, I'm seeing him, he gives away medals every now and then, the runner-up medals and all that to people in the audience. But so, yeah, on this occasion, he won. He must have been overheating, I guess. It was a tough game. Look, I, I always thought he was going to win it. And um, yeah, Mark Allen played a big part in that match. But I suppose we, we mustn't underestimate the fact that O'Sullivan has been around so long. We think, yes, it's another Triple Crown event. It's going to take him past all records. But maybe as he's got older, it's harder and harder to perform like that. And that was a, a terrific win because Mark Allen is a, plays like a man possessed at times. He's such a terrific player. And through that tournament, he played very well. O'Sullivan was too good for him. It was more relief, I thought, at the end of that match than anything else for O'Sullivan. Mm. And Jimmy, listen, we're very lucky. Um, we know O'Sullivan off the table. He sits with us on the Eurosport couch and sometimes he downplays matches and even finals. But I get the feeling with this one, it really meant a lot to him. Yeah, it was amazing to watch him show his true emotion. You know, all the hard work, all them years of years of trying to be the best. And that was to uh, go in front on the, on the triple crown wins. And, uh, you know, the way he celebrated, he jumped on the side barrier. And, uh, you know, I thought he would have gone and kicked on from there, actually. I thought that was the one that said, right, I'm in front now. I'm going to try and make it 10 of each and then uh, sort of maybe hang my cue up. But uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't sort of produced since that final. And mm -hmm. uh, hopefully he'll look back on that very soon and, and get his cue out and start practising and playing a few more tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> Just one thing I wanted to add to that, you know. I mean, the UK Championship these days doesn't get a very good press because the Masters is still is a tournament that's going places. We know we're going to speak about that. You know, the Ali Pali is quite something now. The World Championships is is what it is. It's a great event. But that UK Championship has always been up there and all those great players have won it 
multiple times. You know, Steve won it all those times. You had that record. Stephen Hendry, another one that's dominated that tournament. Okay, the tournament's changed a little bit because the early matches used to be two sessions. The final used to be best of uh, 31. It was uh, first of 16 in those finals. It's a pretty iconic event, you know, with a good history. Well, I'll stay with you, Neil, and then I'll come back to Jimmy. Out of those three, you're going to have to pick your favourite one. The 83 final, Higgins beat Davis. The 2010 final, Higgins, the other one, beat Williams. And uh, the one from two years ago, Ronnie beat Mark Allen. 10-6 in the final. Out of those three, Neil, which is your favourite? No, I, I'm, I'm going to stick with the Alex one. I think that, uh, I know that sometimes nostalgia is very easy to think back all those years and say everything was better, but I just think that match, the way snooker was then, it was a little bit of a different game to now. I mean, I love snooker now. I think it's it's a great, it's great that we've got lots of players from all around the world, but Alex Higgins was a very charismatic guy. So to beat Steve at that time, when most people didn't know how to beat him, just shows you what he had and that would be my final of the three. Jimmy, I have the feeling you're going to agree or maybe not. I've got the O'Sullivan, you know, for that milestone of setting the record of uh, winning so many Triple Crown events. Okay, all right. Uh, we're going to move on now to the best clashes of the Masters and we're going to start with, um, I mean, they're all fantastic matches, but this one's going to be hard to beat. The 2004 final between uh, Paul Hunter and Ronnie O'Sullivan, it was Paul Hunter beating the Rocket by 10 frames to nine. It had just about everything this match, Neil, didn't it? Well, listen, I mean, it's hard almost to talk about Paul Hunter, actually, without getting a bit emotional, because who knows how far he could have gone with his game. You know, he won three Masters, and he won them all from behind. You know, he's one of these guys that... that um, he wasn't a very good front-runner, strangely. I mean, I looked at all those Masters wins... And almost every match went to the last frame. Even you know, even an easy win would be a 6-3 or a 6-4 to get into the final. And against Ronnie, he was 7-2 down. I mean, who beats Ronnie from 7-2 down, especially mm. at the conference centre? But you also look at other stats in that match, and there's a very revealing one there. He, Paul Hunter made five centuries in that final. Ronnie didn't make any. So that tells you this guy was not somebody from, from yesteryear. People speak about how, how much the game's moved on. Paul Hunter was a great player, great scorer, and who knows, just if he'd have been world champion, I think he would have been had he still been alive now. The thing I remember about that final, they both had headbands on. Do you remember that? They both wearing headbands. <laughs> well, can, can I just say, and, actually, and they, I did look back over it, and uh, Paul Hunter's got a headband, but Ronnie has got hair clips in, so he didn't oh, actually have okay. the headband, yeah. But, uh, you know, and it was all about... Um, Paul Hunter being the new David Beckham of snooker and that. And, you know, and as you said, in his previous two matches with Thurgood O'Brien and the other guy, he was well behind in them two matches. And uh, for him to win a third one, 10-9, from being 7-2 behind with Ronnie O'Sullivan was uh, an unbelievable feat. Mm. And as Neil said, we do really miss Paul Hunter and who knows how many tournaments he would have won. I think he's a very interesting player, Andy, because if you look back at his cue action now, um, we're not going to get too deeply into it. As Jimmy pointed out, what a great cue action he had. I've never seen anybody cue further away from the cue ball before they hit it. I mean, Cliff Thorburn used to do it. Most players, I mean, Jimmy White, for instance, would be a player that would cue so close to the cue ball, he'd always feather it. And occasionally over the years, he did do it. I mean, it would cost him. He would always admit to the foul. But with Paul Hunter, he was never going to do that because he's, if you look back at the videos of him playing, his, his cue never got anywhere near the cue ball in the address. It was about four or five inches away. I've never seen anybody do that before. So he was a complete one-off as a player, you know. And as I say, a very, a very inspired player. I don't think I've seen anyone who's better under pressure than him because at any important parts, he would get them. 
Okay, and we haven't even talked about what he did at the interval, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> right, let's move on to the um, 2017 Masters final. The three of us were lucky enough to be there on the Eurosport couch at Ali Pali. So Ronnie O'Sullivan beat Joe Perry 10-7, of course, famous for a record-breaking seventh Masters title for Ronnie O'Sullivan. Although, Neil, it was a struggle for him because he was trailing 4-1 at one stage against Joe Perry. Yeah, and I think the thing about that match, Ronnie was a huge favourite to beat Joe Perry. No one really thought Joe Perry would, would win. I mean, he is, if you talk about the class of 92, he turned professional that year as well. He's not quite gone on to the same things, but he's still a leading player. He's in the top flight now. And Ronnie struggled early on in that match. It was 4-1, like you say. Joe Perry had played well. But in the back of your mind, you always felt that Joe would find it hard to get that match won. And uh, Ronnie came back at the afternoon session. And I think when you got into the evening session, he kind of knew which way it was going. Typically, the London crowd got behind him. I mean, the old conference centre and the Ali Pali were asked quite something for crowd involvement, you know. And uh, that's why one of the reasons, apart from what a great player he is, why Ronnie's been so successful there. But as just said, the longer that match went on, the less likely the shock seemed, you know. And um, I think, I think again, to, to win all those Masters, you know, is quite an incredible achievement by Sullivan. I still don't know why he didn't play in it this year, but I mean, mm. that's not a question for me to answer. But, I mean, it's a shame because he kind of made that venue his own and that tournament his own, really. And, Jimmy, although, of course, um, Joe Perry would be desperately disappointed with how it turned out, he's got to take a lot from the fact that he got to his first major final at the age of 42. Yeah, you know, Joe's in the top 16 now. You know, he's, he's playing some great stuff. And uh, to get to that final, as Neil said, he was 4-1 up there. And Ronnie O'Sullivan, me and you and Neil, was in the studio. He was really struggling. You know, Joe should have took advantage and probably pressed on to there. But maybe see the winning line. O'Sullivan to go and win seven Masters, you know, at, uh, at this standard is just a phenomenal feat. You know, it goes down as one of the greatest matches of all time. He has, of course, still been beaten in finals, most recently in the 2019 final, and been beat convincingly against Judd Trump, who was just absolutely faultless. Um, wiped the floor with him, I think it's fair to say, by 10 frames to four. Incredible victory for Judd. Yeah, and I think that was a real indication that Trump has moved on with his game because... He'd always been, listen, he was a brilliant player, age 12. Uh, he was uh, 14 winning big pro-ams. Um, so he should have turned professional then, but it took him years to get through. Then he got to his world final. He won his UK championship 2011. But then he was almost there to be shot at, had some bad performances in big events. Just before he, that match that we're speaking about against O'Sullivan, he'd, he'd started winning again. He won in Northern Ireland. But that first session... I don't think anyone's ever played better. He was 7-1 up against Ronnie O'Sullivan. He took him apart. And that's almost a glimpse into the future and where we are now with Trump. You know, he, we know how great a player he is now. But that one session, Ronnie played quite well at, at night. And I think they shared the spoils 3-3. But to, to, to win that session 7-1, it told everyone where he was. I think mm. also it just reminded Ronnie that other people can play the game as well. Yeah, Jimmy, how important do you think that victory for Judd Trump was? in the context of going on to become world champion and then dominating the sport as he has. Absolutely. You know, that was a stepping stone. Prior to that, a couple of years ago, he beat Ronnie 10-9 in Romania in a, a ranking tournament. But the way he played in that first session was a bit like the way he played in the first session against John Higgins in the world championships. You know, when uh, he was just phenomenal. And to take Ronnie O'Sullivan apart 7-1 like that, Ronnie didn't really play bad. He just didn't have a chance. Every long ball Judd went for, he knocked in and made a significant break. And, uh, you know, he was 
for me, that has like springboard him into the player he mm. is today. I think that actual match give him the confidence that in a final he can, if he plays his top game, beat O'Sullivan, and he did beat him well. And uh, from then on, he's gone on to be a phenomenal player. I think that has like improved his game twenty one points. I think it was mm. the confidence he needed. Because we all know how exciting his game was. But if that type of player you're attacking all the time, if they're not going in, you leave your opponent easy opportunities. But when they're going in, they're very tough to beat as well. Uh, before we wrap up um, talking about the Masters and move on to the World Championships, Neil, is there any, I mean, what, it's a crazy question, but any matches we've left out? I mean, the one that jumps off the page for me is obviously that man below you, Jimmy White against Kirk Stevens. What a fantastic match that was. But any others you can think of? Well, I mean, I think 84, the year that Jimmy won it, was a big year. I mean, I don't know how he feels about it, but I feel that, I've asked you this before, Jimmy, but did the crowd always help you or did sometimes it prove to be too much pressure on your shoulders? If you're, if you're playing well and you're confident, there's nothing like it. You know, it's just a boost. You, you know, it's like um, crowd surfing, you know, it's just incredible feeling. But if you're struggling and you haven't got confidence, it, it can be such a burden for you because they are screaming for you to pop balls. And you know yourself, when you're properly focused, you don't really hear the crowd too much unless someone stupid shouts at something. But most of the time, you just uh, you get into the focus of the game. But it, it worked. For me, I loved it because, you know, it was such a great buzz to go out and play in the Wembley Conference Centre. You know, there was at one stage, I think there was 3,200 people could watch didn't matter where you was in that venue, even if you was in one of the hospitality boxes, you could still see the game. It was an amazing venue for snooker. So uh, I was just honoured to play there and to have the crowd on my side. But, you know, 75, 25, if you're, if you're confident, yeah. if you're not, it's definitely a, a bender. Well, let me ask you then, before we move on, Jimmy, uh, I'll start with you. Your best match, the one you enjoyed most at the Masters would be w- which one? Um, there was there was there was one match where I, I touched the ball and as Neil was talking about feathering the white earth on and I declared it I would have beat Fallburn that year I ended up losing to him but um, I had so many great matches there you know and I had some disappointing matches there but uh, you know I think I played it, played in it about twenty years I've got to say obviously the one beating Griffiths to win it the match that year with Kirk Stevens that people played at pink all the time. Uh, a bit of controlled flair, which uh, Trump has. Not a lot of players have that. So, um, no, it, I'm just honoured. I can't really pick out. There's so many, and it was always a pleasure to play mm. there. It was a London venue. Time now for the World Championships. Uh, Neil, let's go back to 1982 is the first one we picked out, where Alex Higgins won his second world title. He beat Ray Reardon 1815 in a fantastic final. Yeah, and of course, uh, without going into it, the semi-final, the match with Jimmy, that was the incredible clearance that he made. And that's the reason maybe that Jimmy didn't win that year, because I think he would have beaten Ray Reardon in the final. That's my view. But anyway, it was a great match. I remember he was wearing, um, for that final session, I think a green and, and red shirt with sort of um, green with the, the red sort of on the cuffs or whatever and the collars. Uh, very sort of sticks in my mind. What really we remember most of all is the celebrations afterwards, which I'm sure Jimmy will tell us more about the way he brought his daughter out. But uh, he actually finished off with a really big break, 135, I think. Um, it hadn't always been a classic. And it's safe to say that Ray Reardon took it very well because I don't honestly think him and Alex were had a lot in common. I don't think they were great pals, but but Ray Reardon typically you know, took that defeat 
pretty much on the chin. And uh, it's one of the great moments in sport, I think, that. Mm. I think Jimmy's just picking his dog up. Is, is that what you think, Jim? You got your dog yes, with you? Mate. There he is. What's his name? <laughs> Snowy. Snowy. Beautiful. Okay. Um, what's your recollection of that final? Of course, Neil makes a great point that arguably the greatest break in snooker history happened against you in the semi-finals to stop you getting to the final. Um, but it was uh, another final. We spoke about, about them before where two players contrasting styles as well. Was Higgins favourite going into this one, do you think, Jim? Yeah, he was He was favourite going into that match. And, uh, you know, even though Reardon had got to the final, he'd not played sort of great stuff. And uh, there was, you know, a lot on my match with Higgins, you know, the way he won that match, sometimes it was a writing on the wall. That clearance he'd done was phenomenal. He potted about five or six balls where he was probably four or five to one shot to pot them, you know, and he, and he managed to do that in the break. And as Neil said, he potted a very good long red Higgins in the last frame, stopped the white dead, and he made a perfect total clearance of 130-odd, you know, a, a real mm. nice way to seal the World Championships and win it in style. Jimmy, can I ask you about that semi-final? I think it was Dave Hendon I was speaking to once. It might have been Phil Stahl, I can't remember, but either way. And they were saying that they think that break was so ridiculous by Higgins because he loved you so much. There was a part of him that was thinking, I might as well go for everything here because if I miss, I know Jimmy's going to get to the final. Do you, do you think there's an element of truth in that? No. He, he, Higgins wanted to win at all costs. I, I think, you know... It was sort of on autopilot, but but I can go back um, go back on that match. Someone's uh, said me recently, but I've seen it before. I was seven three up with Higgins, and he went for a brown, which was near the blue. He went for a brown into the yellow pocket. He missed it by that far. It hit four cushions and went in the green pocket, and he ended up bang on the blue like that. Otherwise, it'd have been eight three up. The closest he could have got to me would have been eight five. Uh, you know, in uh, mm. nine five or anyway, I ended up eight seven that session. And uh, you know, looking back, that was where the what you know I had the match won. But you know, the total clear, the, the clearance he done against me was phenomenal. It go down in one of the best ever breaks under pressure. John Higgins mm. done one against O'Sullivan in the final, of the Masters. But uh, you know, when he went on to win that final, he was a big favourite against Reardon, and that also made the game as popular it was because, you know, people wanted to see Alex Higgins win because it was all Steve Davis at the time. Talking to Steve Davis, that brings us nicely on to the final of the 1985 World Championships, probably the most famous final of, of any final in snooker. Neil. Of course, it went the distance. We know Taylor was 8-0 down. It went to a black ball and it was, it was just incredible. 18.5 million people watching that one after midnight. Yeah, and the last frame lasted over an hour. If you look back on that last frame, you might have thought the whole match was was poor, but actually, I mean, it, it was a terrible frame of snooker, if you like. It was brilliant to watch. The drama was incredible. You, everyone was, you know, on the edge of their seats watching it. The standard wasn't very good. Um, I don't even think there was a century in that final, was there? It was certainly one of the matches where there, there wasn't any breaks, and Steve cracked a little bit at the end. I mean, that, that black that he that he overcut to win it was not an easy shot, but he missed it by so far. It just set everyone on the edge of their seats, you know. And it's amazing to think Dennis won the world title that year, not because he wasn't... Going into the world championship, he was clearly playing very, very well. He won his first major event the year before. But really, it shows you what the game is. And I think that's where Shredsville, Jimmy's favourite expression, originated that very day. Mm. 
And Jimmy, when you look at that final frame, uh, Dennis Taylor potted a fantastic brown, great blue as well. And then yeah. the pink was tough because the white was on the cushion. But then I just got the feeling he just kept going for the black. He went for a couple of doubles, <laughs> one, one across the middle, one up and down. You yeah. sort of wonder if fate was on his side that day. Absolutely. As Neil said, Davis cracked, but he also cracked Taylor because a couple of times he just hit the black 100 miles an hour. You know, he wouldn't care who was watching, just hopefully it went in somewhere. But, uh, you know, I was delighted for Dennis Taylor. I remember where I was um, and I, I watched it. Um, you know, it went on quite late as well. I think it was like one o'clock in the morning. But, you mm. know, it was fantastic for the game to see Dennis Taylor win. As you said, we had 18 and a half million viewers. Davis recovered very quickly and, uh, you know, he, he talks about that now. He does lots of tours with Dennis Taylor and they talk about that match. And uh, whether Davis is lying or not, I don't know, but he seems to be okay with it. Yeah, I'm sure he's lying. I'm still it hurts even today. Um, listen, that was a fantastic match. Another great match, uh, one that I know a lot of snooker purists talk about with fond memories, Neil, is uh, one that was quite recent, actually, the 2018 final between Mark Williams and John Higgins that uh, Willow won 18-16. Standard-wise, it was fantastic. Yeah, that was a great match. I know that Phil Yates, who's a you know, great historian of the game, great commentator, we know him all very well. He works for Eurosport uh, for the World Championship. He says it's the best ever final. And again, people, when, when someone says, oh, this year's final would have been the best or last year's when he said it, said, well, hang on, what about all those great finals? But I think in standard, it's hard to beat what we saw. The only one that might compare might have been the 2019 final, which I know we're going to come to. But the standard in that final was brilliant. Mark Williams had just found that new sight right technique, uh, the Steve Feeney thing, which don't forget, Mark Williams hadn't even qualified for the Griswold even before. I think he lost to Stuart Carrington. Didn't make it there. No one gave him a prayer of being world champion. John Higgins was doing what John Higgins does. He'd been in the final the previous year. He led a long way against Mark Selby. But you thought, well, probably John's going to beat Mark. But Mark was brilliant in that match. And it got very tight at the end. But no one could have denied Mark Williams that title. It came from nowhere. But it was by far, he was by far the best player that year, I think. Mm. Uh, one of the oldest world champions, uh, along with Ray Reardon, he was 14-7 up, Mark Williams, and then back came John Higgins to level it at 15. But also a lot of people look back at that final and remember the press conference after Jimmy, where, of course, Mark Williams did it without any clothes on. Yeah, um, Barry Earn made him put a towel around himself, but he made sure it was a bet Fred towel, Barry Earn. You know, he doesn't, <laughs> miss, he doesn't miss a trick. But uh, in that final, uh, he missed a pink towards the end. And what John Higgins does, what he does best, he stepped in and done an incredible clearance to go within one of Mark Williams. And Mark Williams said in interviews after that he knew Higgins was going to clear up. You know, with a lot of players, you thought you're going to get another chance here because he was 60-odd in front. Every shot that Higgins had is keeping him in the tournament, keeping him in the World Championships. And Mark Williams, the next frame, made a 70-odd break to win the World title just shows the metal of the man and the strength of him and how his game had gone from absolutely couldn't really um, string two or three matches together to have two years to find the best nuke of his life. Uh, Neil, let me ask you, we were just talking about Davis against Taylor, the fact that, you know, mentally what that can do to a player, Steve Davis losing an 8-5 to Taylor. He lost the following year, of course, to Joe Johnson. And then, you know, you don't quite know how that affects you as a player. We're talking about John Higgins, who's lost in three consecutive world finals do you think that's done damage to him? Well, I don't know. I think um, of those three, the one against Selby, he was a long way in front of that match, especially towards the end of day one. Looked for all the world he was going to be too far ahead. 
Selby won three frames at the end of day one and then came out a different way on day 17 of the championship, won that. The match against Mark Williams, there's an argument he could have won. But in the 2019 final, I don't think he can have any complaints. He was hammered uh, by Judd Trump. And talking about standards, 11 centuries in that match is a record. And, you know, Judd was incredible. And I, I think of the three finals, that would be the one he could have least complaints about, you know. OK, well, let's talk about that one then. Um, Judd Trump finally becoming world champion, I think at the age of 30, beat John Higgins 89, Jimmy. And as he said, the standard from Judd in that final was up there with some of the best snooker we've probably ever seen in a world final. Yeah, it, it, it is quite, it's quite incredible. You know, going back to that Masters where he beat O'Sullivan 10-4 from going 7-1 up, that was the same sort of snooker he did against John Higgins. And it didn't matter what John Higgins threw on him. Anil would Correct me if I'm right. I think um, he had four centuries in that final, John Higgins. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so he wasn't playing bad stuff. He was just phenomenal, Trump. You know, any chance of a long ball, you know, he, and when he was playing safe, he was putting John Higgins tight on the cushion. Just not a lot you can do it. And when player of that standard produces that type of form, it's more or less impossible to beat. And we've seen two sessions of snooker there that we'll probably never see again. Neil, let me ask you, you and I, uh, in fact, Jimmy as well, but Jimmy was playing it, but you and I, Neil, go back years and years um, working together on the snooker. And I'm, I'm talking about even Premier League snooker. Yeah. And I remember the first time I met Judd, I was with you, obviously. And uh, he was, I think, 16 or 17, and he was playing the likes of Jimmy and Stephen Andrew was playing the Davis and Ronnie. And there was loads of expectation. Everyone said he's going to be a future world champion. Yeah. And, and it probably took longer than we all expected with the talent he's got. Now he's won it, and he's won it in that fashion. Do you expect him to go on and win multiple world championships? I do now because I think when a player wins the world championship for the first time, it can go one of two ways. I mean, I remember, you know, Joe, obviously, when Joe Johnson won, he did get to the final the next year. He had a pretty miserable season throughout, actually, until that final. First-time champions don't always play the same. But in Judd's case, the way he's gone on in in the season, which is just coming to an end, you know, to play the way he has. He's won six ranking events. He seems hungry for success. And I think winning the World Championship is almost taking a little bit of pressure off him now. But what he's not doing is, because I think he's had his days of, you know, he's got he's got flash cars and all that. He's had, he lives a good life. But I think he's almost been through that era in his life already. Now he just wants to be a winner. But he realises all the hard work that goes in means that he can do it again. So in answer to your question, I'll be surprised, very surprised, if he didn't win it again more than one occasion. I think three or four times minimum. Uh, Jimmy, um, a horrible question, but I'm going to ask it to both of you, but I'll start with you, James. Uh, so after we've discussed those matches, and maybe some we've not even talked about, your favourite match in the history of the World Championship would be what? What, playing or watching? Either. You can give me both or one. Um, you. you know, it was, it was a great delight to watch Higgins win the World title in 82. Uh, as for snooker, uh, wise, I think Trump winning this year, you know, he took it. I didn't, I've seen Steve Davis on a consistent level of being such a great match player, Stephen Hendry being such a great winner and a great potter, and O'Sullivan creating chances from absolutely nowhere, putting the game. And then all of a sudden, to see Trump go from this player that frustrated Neil quite a lot more than me, really, because, you know, he was such a great player, but not producing. All of a sudden, connect all the dots, realise that he can practice. He's got to be favourite for the World Championship this year. So I'd, I'd have to say Trump's final against John Higgins was the best snooker, I think. OK. And Neil, same question to you? Hmm. Well, I think that the close finals, I mean, obviously, there's been 
matches have gone down at the last frame. Jimmy's been involved in one of those. We know the 85 final. But the other one that never really gets a mention is the Peter Ebden year, 2002. He beat Stephen Hendry 18-17. So that's another match that was a bit of a nail-biter. You know, Ebden, probably one of those guys, if you could pick someone to, to clear the colours to save your life, he'd be on that list, you know. And um, the pressure didn't get to him. So, again, it's a bit of a forgotten final, but it was a classic. And it was Peter Evans' only title. So that, I'd throw that one in as well. OK, I bet you won't say that to Stephen when you next see him. <laughs> well, look, the, the thing about Stephen, right, it's a bit like you, we don't always remember all his wins because the year he beat Nigel Bond, it's a bit of a one-sided final. It reminds me a little bit of the Pete Sampras career in, in tennis. You know that he won Wimbledon all those times, but there weren't so many memorable wins because he was just a winner. It wasn't about anything else. Steve, Stephen was a cold-blooded winner of tournaments. And there were some great finals. Jimmy was involved in those with him. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? So some of the matches are almost, the story behind it is as good as, as what you see on the table. And with Stephen, he was just a winner. And as I say, in tennis, the Sampras era, he was just the best, full stop. But you don't really look back on those great tennis finals at Wimbledon in the same way. I still bet you won't tell him when you see him next. No. Um, that's <laughs> a wise decision. And that's it. That's all we've got time for when we've been looking back at the greatest matches in uh, the history of the Triple Crown events. Thanks again to everyone that's listened. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of The Break. Remember, please subscribe, rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks again and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.